19th, Proverbs 18, 21. Words kill, words give life, they're either poison or fruit, you choose. <laughs> you know, I, I look at lots of different translations, and the message sometimes is fun. Um, and it's blunt sometimes. I thought, okay, well, that's kind of cool. We've been uh, in a series for a number of weeks taking a look at this big idea that God has that you and I call the church and why the organization, the institutional, um, uh, the institution of the church exists. And we've been mostly using the book of Acts over the last six weeks or so as our, uh, as our kind of our home base. And we've been trying to figure out um, you know, what's the deal here? Because, uh, you know, the church, the church, this idea of having church is more than just an institution and it's more than just the tradition of going every week. What's the deal with it? Why does it work? Why does it still have, um, why does it still have life? Why has it survived after a couple thousand years? You know, in the early, in the first days of the church, the Jewish leaders that were then present tried to snuff it out and they did all, that didn't work. And, the Rome, Roman leaders tried to squash it, and that didn't work. In fact, you know, Rome is gone, and the church has survived, and there have been a couple thousand years of secular ideas that would squash it and want it to go away, and none of that goes away. So why is it that the church continues? We've been exploring that, and, and uh, it, as we've gone through that, we've discovered a very simple gospel truth that we've, we've talked about here. It's very, very simple. The gospel is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. He was buried. He rose, and then he appeared. Witnesses saw him. Pretty, pretty simple deal. There were a lot of eyewitnesses, a lot. And at one time, 500 people in a group saw him at one moment and um, interacted with him. And when you see those kinds of, you know, I mean, I don't know what you would do if you were driving down the street and you saw some person that you had been at their funeral last week and you'd walk past the cat. I mean, what would you do? Would you go home and keep it a secret? And could somebody talk? No, you wouldn't. You would be telling it. And, and, and so things happened, and then a movement started, and it was God's big idea. And, and there were a lot of attempts to squash it. There was a guy named Saul who was the chief persecutor of the Jewish leadership at the time. And for a number of years, he chased people, arrested them, and threw them in jail. And, and uh, he had this encounter with the Lord. He fell off his donkey. He was literally blinded, and God spoke to him. And he realized, oops, I picked the wrong battle here, and, um, which is when you can't win, right? When you pick one against the living God, it's just not a good, smart cho- uh, choice. And um, he turned around. Last week um, was, was, um, was an interesting, fun time for me because it was this, 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 uh, this mistake the church made back then almost had a huge split over, and it persists today. And it, it exists, this problem exists in every church you have ever heard of or ever attended. And uh, it started back then. And these Pharisees, who were very, very educated people who had been in the, in the church for a very long time in the, in the Jewish tradition, just really believed that if you were going to be a follower of Jesus, you first had to be a follower of Moses. You had to become Jewish before you could become a Christian. And if you were going to become Jewish and you were a Gentile man, for example, you, um, you wouldn't have been raised in the tradition, and on the eighth day after your birth, there would have been this little surgery that they would have done. As, and and th- if that's never happened, then and now you come to know about Jesus and open your heart to him, and you're 27 or 43, and they tell you, you've got to become Jewish. You can be a Christian. You can open your heart to Jesus, but first you've got you to have this little surgery. 
And we talked about the fact that, man, the membership class must have been really all women and kids. The guys were out in the car saying, honey, you go ahead. I've got to think about this. And um, um, some, some wonderful scriptures that we talked about that addressed what's inside of every one of us, this pharisaical thing that wants to say, okay, here's what relationship with God looks like. So now as soon as you can look like that, you'll be fine. And I'm going to define it for you. And, um, you know, everybody does that, but none of that is scriptural. That's just not scriptural. In fact, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 um, says that it's by grace that you've been saved, not by works. It's a gift from God. And it's that way so that you can't take pride. You can't boast about you have somehow earned your salvation. It's by grace you've been saved. And um, uh, still, somehow today, that whole problem persists and... Um, it's amazing. It's amazing. And there's, this is a little tiny rabbit trail. Um, I've talked about these different organizations that over time tried to squash the church. You know, in fact, the church does it to itself, too. You know, I've heard people say, the church is the only army, the Christian church is the only army that kills its own wounded. <laughs> it's cute. It's kind of true. You know, I was watching the news um, this week, Maybe you heard Pat Robertson make a comment, and pretty controversial comment. In context and out of context, it was pretty controversial. And he was, he was fielding this live question that had to do with uh, Alzheimer's circumstance. It's a heartbreaking circumstance. And he made this comment. And I don't want to go into the comment, because then you'll be off on that instead of this. But, but I'm watching the body of Christ devour the man now. <laughs> You know, I think he made a mistake. I don't really agree with his statement. I think it has some scriptural weaknesses. Let's just put it that way. But the point isn't that let's devour him now. But that's kind of what the body of Christ has a tendency sometimes to do. We kind of devour. So here we are, though, still after a couple thousand years, there must be something more than human intellect can explain why we're still around. Something is going on that maybe supersedes humankind. And, of course, that's what you would expect me to say. I believe that there's a spirit of, the, of God that keeps it alive, right? So, anyway, that, that mistake, mistake still persists in the church today. And it's the reason that there are a lot of people out there who believe in God, and they want to find peace, and they want to have peace about their eternity, but they just don't think they're ever going to find it in the church because of this pharisaical attitude. You know, the Apostle James at one point, uh, says, hold on, okay, this is enough discussion. I'll tell you how I feel about this. He said in Acts 15, he says, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so we concluded last week that the church has to intentionally, we have to on purpose, avoid our natural tendency towards legalism and being focused on the insiders. We have to, there's a tendency that we want to go there, we have to, we have to resist that. And so today, today is a wrap-up of that series. Um, I'm going to you know, wrap up our series about the birth of the church and talk about why the church is still relevant and effective. And uh, this should help you, I think, as you navigate among the people you know out there that just don't attend church. There's a guy named David Aikman. Uh, he's an author, foreign policy consultant. He's, uh, he, had, he got his Ph.D. from the University of Washington, actually, and he studied Russian and Chinese history. And he got his PhD's doctor, Dr. David Aikman. He got that back in uh, 1979. You might not have ever heard him before. You might have heard, a, you might have heard some of 
his comments and his words at some point. He was um, a, an editor for Time magazine. And in the, um, let's say, late 70s to early 90s, he did some remarkable interviews. He, he, um, he interviewed people like Mother Teresa, Manuel Noriega, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Boris Yeltsin, Billy Graham, some pretty major characters in the world um, that he's, he's uh, interviewed over time. And for a season, he was the, um, the Beijing bureau chief for Time Magazine, which basically means that any news that was going on there that was, was newsworthy in, 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 in terms of making it into Time Magazine, um, he would be the one that would suss it out and find it out and get it reported and so forth. And um, so you can imagine, like any periodical or any, any member of the press, they want to have a scoop, they want to have good stories, they want to be out ahead of the crowd, because that sells newspapers. So this guy was uh, in charge of, of basically watching the nation of China, among his many places that he worked. And um, um, there are several... He wrote this book, um, the name of the book, big long name, How Christianity is Transforming China and Changing the Global Balance of Power. Christianity is changing China and transforming the global balance of power. That's a mouthful, pretty significant, interesting statement this guy who is a journalist makes about uh, Christianity. And he's, he highlights what's going on there, and uh, you may or may not keep track of these kinds of things, but he, um, he noticed that the, the educated elite, if we can use that term, you know, artists, doctors, educators, people... Um, he, he noticed that there are ma- many, many more of them who are becoming Christians. And he thinks that as that number grows, that they're going to very soon have a significant influence in their domestic and uh, international policy, their national policy. Interesting. And, in fact, Chinese believers, if you, uh, you, I don't know who speaks for them, but there are different comments, but they, 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 their perspe- perception is in a few years, they're 20 to 30% of the Chinese population is going to be Christian. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, Mr. Aikman also, or Dr. Aikman also talks in his book about um, this very sad repression of Christianity that's taken place in China. Obviously, right? You know, Christianity has been repressed there. And he compares, he makes some comparison there. He, he, he notes that there was about a little under 500 years of Rome repressing Christianity, and then Rome collapsed and Christianity kind of broke out about 500 years. And he makes note in his book that um, missionaries have been in China now for a little over 400 years, and Christianity now is about to break out. Kind of interesting parallel, kind of a pro- provocative. And he starts talking about a tipping point that he thinks when Christians make about 10% of the population there, he feels that they're going to break over the top and that their growth won't be, able, it won't be stoppable. I don't know if that's true or not. But he's uh, doing these interviews with all these major world players, and he talks to someone about the impact of Christianity upon their culture, and um, he makes some really interesting statements that are relevant to where we are today, what we're talking about today. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to share them with you. And I think sometimes for us to say, how relevant is the church in our culture? We have a hard time assessing that because we want it to be more relevant. We want people who are at work, for example, to, um, to understand 
what's there, what's, how they can be helped, how they can be blessed, how their lives can be changed, the good things about relationship with God. And we just don't understand sometimes why it doesn't penetrate further. We just know there's a wall. We just know there's resistance. We know there's all these pre-existing assumptions. And so sometimes we can't see the forest because the trees are right in front of us, right? So it's interesting when someone from there, China, takes a look at America and makes these interesting comments. So he talked to some social scientists there who, um, who were uh, supposed to carefully study the West. Now we're talking about indoctrinated Maoists, believers in communism, um, and so I'm not going to do a political teaching right now, but, um, but, but, but this is the guy that's making the commentary. And here's, here, I'm going to quote him a little bit. One, here's a quote. One of the things we were asked to look into is the success. In fact, the preeminence of the West over the world. Their task was figure out why. Why has the United States of America been so successful in the world in the last, for whatever length of time? What is the West doing, and how can we emulate that? How can we be a success like they are? I mean, if you think about it, you've seen it happen in industry, and it, China's not the first. Taiwan did it, Korea has done it, Japan has done it. They look at the United States of America and say, hey, if we do some things that they're doing, we'll have economic prosperity, we'll have freedom, we'll, we'll do this. So they've taken a look. Now China's taken a look. China is the most populous nation, it's huge. And they're trying to figure out, so they sent these really smart guys to go figure this out. Okay, and here's, what, here's, here's the answer to their question. I'm going to read a quote from this, this study. We studied everything we could from historical, political, economic, and cultural perspective. At first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. That's a simple explanation. The bigger your guns, the more powerful your economy, the more widespread your influence. In other words, if you've got big guns, then you must be able to be successful in every other arena. That was their first conclusion. Okay. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Next, we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, we have realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That is why the West has been so powerful. Now, that's profound. This is a Maoist in China whose role was to study for the government bigwigs. What are they doing to succeed? Because we'll do that. They're not giving up their ideology, but they're trying to figure us out. Now, you and I don't think this way. We don't think that the, that the reason, the typical American doesn't think this way, maybe Christians do, but the typical American doesn't think that the reason that America has been blessed is because of Christianity. They think it's because, you know, we've got more airplanes, we've got a great economy, we've got free enterprise, we've got, you know, smart bombs, we've got sea to shining sea, we've got all these things, that's why America is great. And they don't think it's because of the presence and the influence of God in our nation. They just don't think that way. Our nation doesn't think that way. In fact, people who have a tendency to resist God will find every other explanation first <laughs> before they ever will say, well, this is because God's blessing our country. It's rare someone will say, this nation is being blessed for a secular person. It's rare that they'll say, this nation is being blessed because we've stood by the nation of Israel. Scripture tells us to pray for the peace of, of Jerusalem. It tells us to do that for a good reason. And there's a lot more in that. That's a whole different. But in China, they've taken some really smart people and said, look in from the outside and said, what's the secret? And these guys have come back and they've said, ha, 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 
we now know what your secret sauce is. It's Christianity. We got the recipe to your secret sauce. Now, you and I have all kinds of disagreements. We got, you know, in, as Americans, we've got all these disagreements about how we should live, what's the right way to live. I mean, Americans have all these approaches and all these solutions, right? Um, and even in the church. But, you know, look at America. I mean, we have entire broadcast networks who only exist to propel a viewpoint. And then there are other broadcast networks who exist to propel a slightly different viewpoint. I mean, there's viewpoints right there. And, I mean, look at our nation, the amount of time and effort and energy that we spend as a nation proclaiming all these different approaches for how things should be. It's an amazing amount. And even a Christian, you know, even Christians, we can't all agree on how to live life. I mean, I mean, you just take a look at the body of Christ, and this is not a slam on the body of Christ. It's just an observation. We've got all kinds of different denominations. We've got all kinds of churches that are independent. We've even got churches that are non-denominational. I don't really know what that phrase means. Um, Anti-denominational, I mean, I don't know what that means exactly. And then we've got other faiths, we've got cults, we've got atheists. We've got all kinds of different explanations for how to live and what to live. But you have an objective observer from the outside looking in who says, I know what your secret sauce is, and I figured it out, and it isn't your missiles. It's not Microsoft. It's not even Apple. It's not the Bank of America. It's not the fact that you found oil in, the, in Texas or any other natural resource. It's your religion. It's your Christianity. And they go on. Okay, so here's, here's where they go on. They say, the Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life is what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubt about this. This is not even... An, they, they, they have moved past opinion to conclusion. It's amazing. what They have figured out why America succeeds and America doesn't really even know why we're succeeding. It's amazing. And it wasn't just capitalism. It was capitalism with a conscience. And that, that conscience has been informed by the church. It's been informed and led by the teachings of the New Testament. They were pretty smart to figure it out, that it wasn't capitalism alone that would get them, get us, get them there or get us there. It wasn't bigger bombs and smart bombs. And it, it's, it's the secret sauce of these values is this fundamental belief, this cohesion that brings people like you and me together this amazing sense of right and wrong that we possess, and, and, and we are light years ahead of the nation of China concerning a sense of right and wrong. I mean, our, our desire to treat women and children, I've go, that's a rabbit trail I won't take on. So anyway, they go on. Studies by Chinese sociologists reveal, okay, this is their smart people looking at their own country now, that in rural areas of China, wherever traveling evangelists you and I would call those missionaries, wherever traveling evangelists introduce Christian faith, opium addiction goes down, crime drops, and Christian families grow wealthier than their neighbors. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I wonder if that would happen here. <laughs> and they've discovered something that America seems to have lost sight of, and that is that church matters. The church makes a cultural difference. 
you know, the things that you and I love, our freedoms, our opportunities, we attribute to a whole list of different reasons. But people, smart people on the outside looking in, know that there's a belief system and a value system here where dignity is given to men and dignity is given to women and dignity is given to children and dignity is trying to be given to unborn children. Dignity that comes from a, a, um, a form of, of our Christian heritage. We own this. We ought to own this proudly, not boastfully. And that's the secret of Western success. And there are good reasons why you and I can't always see this. You know, I mean, we're so marinated in this culture, in this way of thinking, um, that it just seems to come natural. So when we're watching TV and we see these news reports from some other country where things are kind of really weird, we ask ourselves the question, you know, why don't they just get up? Why don't they just grow up and, you know, get along with each other? What are they doing that crazy stuff for? Why don't they just fix that? And we would never, you know, we'd never allow that to happen in the United States of America. We say those kinds of things. And you and I have been so extraordinarily impacted by Christianity because of the culture that's been built over a long period of time that we just don't see it. But the guys on the outside look in. The question, you know, does the church still matter? You better believe that the church still matters. You, people, you are the church. You are the culture. You are the carriers of this infection. Since there's a movie out right now about it, I don't know, whatever. You are the carriers of this infection that is so important for our culture. And just the fact that you attend church and sit in the house of the Lord and worship him and allow him to shape your hearts has this influence on the people you work with. You, 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 you can't calculate it. You can't always see it. And you don't always know it. And many times you run past it and don't even you know, consider it. But it's there, and it's so important. We are the stewards of the message of eternal life. That's true. But we're also the stewards of a better life, a better kind of life and a better quality of life. You know, um, I'm going to kind of, I mean, I'm going to tell you that being natural, natural isn't always good, okay? <laughs> because nature in itself can sometimes be very destructive, very violent. You'd have to agree with that. I mean, I mean, you ever heard of a hurricane or a tornado or um, volcanoes or the cholera epidemic? Or, I mean, nature left to itself grinds things up and wears them away, and blows them away, and washes them away. And Nature in itself can be very, very destructive. And um, humans, we human beings, we have a nature too, right? we got a nature too. And um, our human nature gets described in the Bible, and it uses kind of an old-fashioned term. I was kind of sensitive to old-fashioned terms when I saw the word wretched, wretched you know, a wretch like me. I don't talk that way very often. Um, but I sing it, I guess. If I'm led there, I'll <laughs> sing it there. Um, and uh, so, but the Bible uses these old-fashioned terms, and some translations use the term flesh to describe our human nature. Many times when you see the, the word flesh in the Bible, it can literally mean your you know, tissues. But many times it's talking about your human nature. And uh, in fact... Our natural response in whatever circumstance that we might be in is dictated by your nature. You are pre-wired or you are hardwired to have certain characteristics and tendencies, and um, so you have that nature. And it's because of our human nature that we decide to pass laws. You think about it. 
It's because of human nature that all laws exist. And um, here's an example of that. Um, I don't mean to be um, insensitive, but, uh, but this will make my point. Um, ladies, you can not listen if you want to, but guys, I would talk to you for a second. Imagine a culture where there were no consequences, no cost, and every decision that you made was based upon your sexual nature, and there would never be any consequences or downside to it. Imagine what the culture would be like. You don't have to imagine that. Don't imagine very much. Okay, stop. Okay. (laughs) You don't have to imagine that very hard because there have been examples of it. That's exactly what the Roman culture was. Exactly what it was. And it collapsed under its own moral decay. And since Rome, there were lots of cultures that were like that. Um, through the Middle Ages, there were kingdoms and the king basically made the laws and they could pass whatever laws they wanted and whatever they felt like, that's the way it was and they many times would indulge themselves. And they didn't survive. That form of social structure has gradually evaporated because it just doesn't work. The reason that you and I pay our taxes for the most part is because we don't want to get caught not paying our taxes. (laughs) You know, it's just, we don't want to pay the consequences for cheating. So, you know, and and if it's not taxes for you, there are reasons that you cooperate with certain laws. I mean, I get on the freeway and I want to go. And that's a simple law, you know, a reasonable speed that's still relatively dangerous, but I want to go. In fact, a couple of cars ago, I had this fun little car. I mean, it was, a, it was a blast. It was a little muscle car, a lot of horsepower, and the top would come down. And I mean, completely fed my flesh. I mean, completely, almost completely. I mean, I could go faster, I suppose. And it was a lot of fun. And one of the reasons, the primary reason I got rid of the car, there was nothing wrong with it. I mean, I kept that car. It was perfect. I mean, I, I loved that little car. That's one of the reasons I got rid of it. But the other reason was that it completely frustrated me because I'd get on the on-ramp. And (laughs) I've joked about this before. I would hammer the throttle in that car, and like that, I'd be over the speed limit. The car had too much horsepower, and it was a lot of fun, and the guys were all going, yeah, let's go do that, and that's a lot of fun. But it was really frustrating because you couldn't get out and go. There was some reason, somebody somewhere, I wouldn't get a ticket it would have been the kind of thing where they would cuff you and shove your head down as they shove you in, you know? I mean, it just, it, it, it literally frustrated me. This was a car that I had wanted for decades. <laughs> a little agreement from the front row. I mean, I'd wanted it for a long time. And I had it, and I enjoyed it, and I babied it, and I pampered it, and I took it to car shows. And I did a lot of fun stuff with it. Had it in parades, and princesses rode in the back. And then when I weren't in parades, a queen rode in the front. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it frustrated me. It just frustrated me. And, you know, I, you, you have your own example of why you need laws in your life. Because your human nature will push you right into the red zone. It'll put you in places that you'll get into trouble. That's why we pass laws. All laws exist to deal with controlling our fallen human nature. And, um, you know, we have some, we can exercise some self-control. But there is something better than the law. 
and more powerful than human nature. And so finally we get into uh, today into the scripture, Galatians chapter 5. And uh, so let's, let's hop into uh, Galatians 5. And of course, like usual, I've got it here for you in case you don't have your Bible. Uh, by the way, the fact that I always put the scriptures almost always up for you is not me suggesting to you not to bring your Bible. I think you should bring your Bible. But I always want to remain sensitive to people who may not have brought one or someone who's visiting. I don't want them thinking that we're just, you know, off on the rabbit trail. I'll tell you if I'm going to go on a rabbit trail. And I will go on rabbit trail. But, but I, I think the scripture needs to be up there and it needs to be read. So, okay, starting in uh, Galatians 5. That's a little ways into the New Testament, Galatians. It'd be nice if they were alphabetical, you know. Here's a couple of hints. Um, all of the T's are together. So if you find any New Testament book with a T that starts with a T, all of them are together. Okay, that's your, that's your rabbit trail on finding Scripture. Okay, so Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. What I say is this. Let the Spirit direct your lives, and you will not satisfy the desires of the human nature. For what our human nature wants is opposed to what the Spirit wants, and what the Spirit wants is opposed to what the human nature wants. By the way, this battle doesn't go away just because you get saved, Right? These two are enemies, and this means that you cannot do what you want to do. If the Spirit leads you, then you are not subject to the law. Wow. Um, This issue about our flesh and the Spirit are always enemies and at war. I was, you know, reading through this, and, you know, it, it means this is telling us some things. It's telling us that you and I don't have to always have the law in order to keep ourselves in line. You know, there's something about your faithfulness that will kick in. When the Spirit leads you, you, you will, when you are being led by the Spirit, you're capable of being more faithful to your wife or your husband. When the Spirit kicks, kicks in, you're capable of being more sensitive to what guidance your children need. When the Spirit kicks in, you're able to say no with your credit card rather than yes. When the Spirit kicks in, you're able to be generous when you see someone who needs your help. When the Spirit kicks in. And I was thinking about this this, this, this opposition between the spirit and the flesh. Here's where this, this lands at home for sometimes for people. We pray for someone. Or we're not praying for someone. And they don't get healed. Or, or the Lord takes someone home. Lisa and I have close friends who um, have children our age. And I think I might have told you a story in a, in a message sometime in the last year or so, since I've been here a year now. Um, seems like fun. This is great. Um, but I might have told a story about this where one morning early I, I got this phone call from this close friend who was literally howling on the phone. It was like four in the morning, and uh, the police had told her to come to a lake. And they were searching for her son. And um, he was in his early 20s, and he drowned. And it's not like this Christian family and this Christian young man weren't pursuing the Lord's will. They were. They were following the Lord. Why did he drown? And by the way, there is no answer to that question that you and I will be aware of and think up. Um, But there are some things that we do know, some things we can know. I had to conclude that this was the most loving choice heaven had for this boy, this young man. I had to conclude by faith that the Lord looked into his tomorrows 
and saw some things going on there that may have fed his flesh or may have done something that he might have enjoyed for a season. But the Lord looks at the long term. The Lord looks at the spirit and he says, this, that's not the best for this, this boy. And I know my kids will not understand this and I know they're going to hurt, but this is the loving thing. I'm, come, come on home, Josh. Come on, right now. I know you weren't thinking this was the time. I know this is not how you would have planned it, but trust me, come on. So hard to get your, arm, and your, your arms and your heart wrapped around those kinds of things. I, I prayed with um, my loving father and um, watched him die. I watched cancer take him. It was hard. And um, I prayed for his healing. Lots of people stood for him and prayed for his healing. But he still died. And um, I'm okay with that. It hurt. I miss him. It's been a while. But I'm okay with the fact that the Lord called him home. The word says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. It's, it's, part, it's part of the deal. It's part of the process. And yet we look at that and we try to figure out, well, Lord, why did bad things happen to good people? And where are you? And why don't you love us? Because if you loved us, you would do this list of things and we fill it in. And um, that's not true. Because if the Lord loves, and he does, he will do the loving thing, and he has. Every single time, including the times that you can't figure it out. Okay. Anyway, so verse 19. What human nature does is quite plain. It shows itself in immoral. Okay, I thought about trying to define that. I'm not going to try and define that word, what's immoral. I think everybody here has their own definition of immoral. In fact, everybody here probably has two things, a list of two things, what they consider to be immoral, and then their own areas in their own life that they know they've been over that line. So I'm not going to try to define immoral today. Um, going on filthy and indecent actions. Now, depending on your translation, there's a place for a old-fashioned word. The word debauchery might show up in your translation. Or debauchery, that's like wretched, wretched or debauchery. <laughs> and basically, it's an old-fashioned word that means you just indulge yourself to the extreme. Okay. Uh, verse 20, in worship of idols. Now, that isn't just you get yourself a Buddha and you pray there. Worshiping of idols is putting anything ahead of God, including his people. Let me, let me rephrase that because you might not have caught that. I'm not saying putting his people ahead of him. I'm saying you put anything ahead of his people is a form of idol worship. It's like saying, I don't, I don't care what you do as long as you don't scratch my car. Then you'll deal with my wrath. That's an example. Or you'll spill something on my floor. Or fill, I, mean, I'm, I, I probably don't need to go into that. But the point is that idolatry can include you putting things ahead of people. That's a form of idolatry. Okay. And witchcraft. People become enemies and they fight. They become jealous, angry, and ambitious. They separate into parties and groups. They get envious, get drunk, have orgies, and do other things like that. I warn you now as I have before, that those who do these things will not possess the kingdom of God. Now, I look at the Chinese people who are doing these studies, and they understand the facts. I'm not sure if they got their hands on the truth. Those aren't the same thing, right? Facts and the truth are not the same. A lot of people reach wrong conclusions by their assessment of facts, and their, their version of the truth is inaccurate. So 
you know, um, we have to be very careful about that. In fact, one of the mistakes, the one that's obvious here, is that the, the possible belief that Christianity is something you do as opposed to Christianity is something that you are. Lisa and I have these, um, I wouldn't call them friends because I don't think we've seen them in decades, but this couple that we knew who were nice people, educated, successful, married couple, didn't follow the Lord, um, but they tithed. You don't hear about that too often, right? I mean, in the church, bringing up tithing is controversial, even though it's in the Word of God, and there's good reasons for why we do it and so forth. But hearing about someone who is not a church person, is not a Christian, but they tithe, ask the question, why do you do that? They understood the truth of tithing. The Word of God says, test me in this, test me in this, see if I will not pour out a blessing and a bounty. This is not, today's sermon is not about giving and tithing, but here's this couple who understands the word of God, this fact is truth, and they, they tithe. And they found the Lord did what he promised he would do without respect to all of the rest of scripture. There's no qualification in, in Malachi 3. There's no, there's, there's no qualification there that says tithe and, blah, 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 and have this surgery. It's not on the list, right? <laughs> you know, so here's this couple who really don't have anything to do in, with the relationship with God and they tithe, and the Lord blessed them. And I, and I believe it, and they believed it, that the reason that the Lord was blessing them was because they tithe, although they didn't have the rest of the relationship figured out with God. They had no other relationship with God. It's like they understood the facts, but not the truth. There was some blessing that was occurring in their life, and that was, seemed to be enough. I don't know about these guys in China, what they'll do with it. Anyway, so um, we continue on, verse 22, and here we go. But the Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. There is no law against such things as these. There's no form of government. There's no philosophy. There's no rules, no culture, no human nature-based system that will produce those things. There isn't one. Although many in our government want to tell you that they can legislate these, these, these things into existence. And many of the things that they legislate are good. I'm not, this is not a political statement. This is a, this is a spiritual statement. There's no government that will produce these things. It's the spirit that produces them. In fact, laws don't produce what the spirit produces. And you people are the movement. You are the carriers. The movement we've been talking about over the last several weeks. You're the carriers of this infection. Matthew 5 verses 13 to 16. Here is Jesus speaking. He says, you are like salt for the whole human race. But if salt loses its saltiness, there is no way to make it salty again. It has become worthless, so it's thrown out and people trample on it. You're like the light of the whole world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. By the way, I'm using today's English version quite a bit today. And um, so that's another reason that I put the scripture up there in case the translation doesn't match. You can always see, but this is the today's English version. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it's put on a lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. Our message has shaped our culture and it's shaped the West. China's figured it out they want to be like it 
be like that. And the question I would ask for you is, if our message was to disappear, uh, the message of the church goes away, what would happen? If you want to imagine that, you don't have to look very far. Look back a few years, maybe if you're old enough to remember the Soviet Union. Here there was a culture that basically said, you know, they tried to have economic, economic freedom and so forth, and it didn't work. And it went bankrupt because they believed that the state was God. They believed that the state was God. So then they tried, since that time, they tore down the wall and all that kind of stuff. They tried free enterprise. But they don't have the conscience informed by the church, and it's continued to fall. They, they, they decided, the reason that, that it fell is because they felt like the state was God. That's like saying, well, but the environment is God, or football is God, or money is God, or muscle cars <laughs> are, are God. And I promise you they're not. They're really not. So those in China are exactly right. The secret sauce is the church. It's Christianity. It's the teaching of the values of Jesus. The gospel has the power to transform lives, communities, nations, and even the whole world. Mankind only has, if you can sum all their problems down into three categories, sin, sorrow, and death. And the solution to all three of those areas, sin, sorrow, and death, is found right here. Right here. Can we be a part of reshaping our culture as we wrap up this series and today's message? Yeah. You know, there are more crosses today in Rome than in any other city in the world. And the Roman government is gone. This message has been powerful, and it's, it it's continues to be powerful for a couple thousand years, and it'll, be, it'll continue to be powerful. You and I have been given stewardship of the message of eternal life, but we've been given stewardship of something else, and that's the message of a better life and a better life now. I, I want to um, say to you that it's just we dare not turn our back to our culture and just talk this message amongst ourselves. This would be a huge mistake because we are the ones who have been given stewardship of this message and this hope for our world. That's my way of nudging you and saying, you know, you don't need to get in people's grill and become the office weirdo. That, that doesn't work either. But you should feel the confidence to lovingly stand be a person of character and love. Be the one that shows patience. Be the one who actually has reasonable hope and answers to give to people around you. You should be salt and light. You should not be hidden, but you need to be like, a, like, like Jesus said, a light that shines and fills up your whole room. It's hard to do and we make mistakes, but I encourage you and I challenge you. Um, you're a part of this movement. And you're part of the reason that the Lord invented the church. Um, and since we're talking about stewardship, and since a little bit earlier I made commentary about our youth, um, where, we're, where we're going with that, I want us to just take a minute and pray as we wrap up the service about our own stewardship of this message. For the, not, just, not just our youth program to tell kids about it, but what you and I will do, how we are going to steward this message in the people that we personally touch. Would you close your eyes and let's pray together? We, we invite God the release of the fruit of the Spirit. We invite the release of those things 
not just in our life for our own personal consumption and enjoyment, but we ask for it to happen in our life, Lord, so that it can bubble up on the people around us. I specifically name love, Lord, and I ask God that the message of love would be something that we emote, not just talk about, but that we do it, we choose it, and people know it and they feel it. Lord, and the the fruit of joy. Sometimes that can be so hard for us when we face hard things. But Lord, we find our joy in you and peace. Sometimes, Lord, we need the miraculous visitation of the peace that goes beyond our understanding. But Lord, that's not all the time. Sometimes, God, we just carry peace with us because we walk in peace knowing our future is secure, knowing how you think about our tomorrows, about our future, and about our hope. And Lord, for patience, don't like to ask for, for, for you to help shape that in us because it sometimes might mean grinding. But Lord, help us be models of patience and kindness more than just paying it forward at the Starbucks drive through window. More kindness than that. Kindness that sees someone who's hurting and just cares for a moment. Sometimes that's all that it needs. And the Holy Spirit gets in there and does the impossible. So I pray, Lord, over the release of kindness and goodness and faithfulness humility and self-control. Lord, I pray over those, those issues and I pray, God, that you would ramp that up in our souls so that it can't help but overflow. God, before we dismiss today too, I just want to pray over the concerns and maybe the pain that's present. Because I know some of the examples that I was talking about might have triggered other thoughts and issues in our hearts that are in this room. I want to be in agreement with unspoken needs. Lord, I just pray for a visit of your spirit upon unspoken needs. Church, keep your eyes closed for a minute, please. Every eye closed. And I would just ask this, that if you would say to the Lord and you name a specific need, not out loud, but just as you pray, raise your hand and say, Lord, here's an unspoken need. Would you intervene here? And as you raise your hand, we're going to all pray um, in agreement. God, um, my eyes are closed too, but you see and you hear these petitions of heart. I ask God for your spirit to sweep through, to carry us, Lord, to animate those circumstances, to bring life, to bring wholeness, to bring healing, to bring unity, to bring peace and joy and love. We ask God for provision. We ask God for the right words, for the wisdom. We ask God for a binding up of broken relationship and broken hearts. We ask God for heaven's heaven's plans of love for your people. And you can put your arms down now. Lord, we thank you, God, for um, your, your wisdom, Lord, that has kept your big idea alive long enough to sweep us in, in as well. We're thankful, Lord, that somebody somewhere was bold and shared the gospel with us. We're thankful, Lord, that somebody somewhere who could see and be sensitive to our needs spoke loving words to us, and somehow we found our way into your lap. We thank you, Lord, for the people who have gone before us. Now, Lord, we realize that we're walking ahead of somebody else. We don't even know who they are. And we don't know how many branches will branch off from those that we touch. We just pray about those, those places and those opportunities. And we ask God for influence there to be eternal and positive. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You have a song for us. Let's stand and sing Amazing Grace. Amazing.